This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Raz Godelnik, Assistant Professor in Strategic Design and Management at Parsons School of Design. Has a specific focus on climate change and how design can affect that and make that world better. Really excited to have him on the show with us. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Philip. I want to start off with a piece you wrote last year, actually, that I kind of used as a blueprint going into this conversation. Because you said quite a few things in that piece. You talked about how 2018 was all about clarity and 2019 should be all about navigation and navigation in the world of climate crisis, climate change, how we discuss those issues. So now that we're toward the end of 2019, when we're recording this conversation, we can have the benefit of hindsight and look back on that prediction. So I'm going to start off very simply. If you said that 2019 was going to all be about navigation, was it? Looking back on the year, as we're now recording this in late December, mid-December, do you think it was a year of navigation? And if not, then why not? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to some extent, we can say that it was, but it also wasn't. And let me explain. I think that in a way, we had a tremendous year with so much attention given to the climate crisis. And that was something that we didn't see in 2018. I think that in 2018, we were kind of lost. And the idea was that in 2019, we'll find the direction. And I think that that direction is becoming clearer, but we're not there yet. So we have a better understanding of what we need to do, but we still don't have the understanding of how to do it. And that is, I think, what will be perhaps the most important challenge for the next couple of years. And that next couple of years, and, and even beyond that, like I said, we're recording this in the middle of December. By the time our listeners are hearing it, we will be in 2020. And do you have a thought in mind as to with the momentum that we're seeing coming out of 2019, you know, what direction are these conversations around climate crisis and climate change going to go? Well, it's it's hard to tell, but I think what I hope to see, I can start maybe by saying what is perhaps, you know, a more desirable outcome for me rather than just, you know, say what I expect to see. I think that it probably be more accurate. So I think from my point of view, it's really about how do we find better and more articulated or better articulated not just policies, I think that's one part of the challenge, but also ways in which we can create a better connection between individual and collective action. I think this is a part that we're not that, you know, doing that great with. And the question I think for us is to figuring out the ways in which we can create a better connection that could then help move the needle. 
And it's interesting that you brought that question up or actually frame the challenge in the way that you did, meaning that there is collective action. And, you know, I'm going to paraphrase for a second and you can correct me if I'm going in a different direction. But by collective action, are you talking about action that's coming from policy generated by government, by corporations, as compared to individual choices and actions we might make as consumers? Is that the distinction you're making there? Yes. So... Individual action, basically, this is about the actions that you take to make your lifestyle more sustainable. It's about the, the choices that you make about your own practices, about your own day-to-day life. When I think about collective action, this is really about the political sphere, and this is about becoming a part of a movement or creating a new movement. This is about voting. This is about engaging with other people in conversations about these issues. This is really about just, you know, getting outside your own four doors and in a way getting outside your own head and becoming part of of something that is greater. And I think that what we need is to have, again, a better understanding of how to connect the two. And in your estimation, because one of the things that when I think about any movement in cultural movement as an anthropologist, and this can be in a for-profit frame, um, thinking about traditional marketing and branding type exercises. And we can take it into the sphere in which we're having the conversation, climate change, climate crisis, climate policy, is this idea that so much of these movements can potentially be co-opted by those more institutional Forces and I and I think you you see this with greenwashing with corporate CSR measures that are in many cases they don't go far enough in in their push from an institutional perspective to change things. So even as we have this momentum that we highlighted, how do we guard against that desire for people to coalesce into movement, but then not have those movements be co opted by the status quo? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, in a way, I mean, it's a challenge that is very much about creating relevance and emotional connections, right? So I could, you know, talk all day about climate change, but if I go, you know, if I go home and just continue with business as usual, then I didn't do much. And the same goes for, you know, being. I don't know. Maybe you can give me uh, an example. What do you do, Philip, to make your life more sustainable? For me, it's primarily in buying choices, the ways in which I might go about picking products, which is a lead actually to another question, because I think there's a disconnect between what people say they're willing to do or what they say they care about. So a lot of stats will say people are very concerned about brands and how sustainable they are, how their practices, whether it's in their environmental practice or what have you, but then their purchases don't really reflect that. So my personal thing is to try to be as much of an ethical consumer as I can be while understanding that my very existence in a Western economy, Northern Hemisphere economy is complicit with, you know, a host of issues, but by just deign of me living here, right? Like there's, that's just the way it is. 
But even within that frame, I try to make my choices if I know also as ethical as possible. But I think, and I don't know if I do that any better, any worse than anyone else, but I think those are the personal things. And then in the back of my mind, I fall on that corporate sword where I'm like, well, you know, these are the people really doing the polluting, right? (laughs) Like They're the ones that are really out there from an institutional perspective that can move the dial more than I ever could. Right. You know, so from a design perspective, I did a talk actually up at Parsons in, in July mm-hmm. where I, where I highlighted that in a lot of ways, the way in which we frame sustainability still encourages consumption. Right. We have the plastic bin, the glass bin, the paper bin. And so we've built our the way in which we've designed our spaces encourages, I think, a fairly traditional way in which we think about sustainability. You know, so I'm, I'm curious about, you know, you're you're focused on these issues as well. Like, how do you yeah. think about designing our spaces, you know, in a way that encourages a different outcome? So I let me maybe talk about two important points. So one, yeah. I mean, there's an ongoing debate, right, about what is more important is, are these the choices that you as an individual do? Or is it just about, you know, policies and regulation? and ways to move companies in the right direction. Because at the end of the day, those that are considering policy as the main or the most effective tool say that, you know, it doesn't matter what choices you, Philip, make because it won't move the needle, right? It's just, you know, it's really a small change. And the more important part is really the the policy that, can change the behaviors and practices of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. At the same time, there are those that consider, you know, that individual choices are important because, you know, small changes can eventually lead to greater changes. And then there could be ways in which, you know, it's really at the end of the day about, right, about creating more agency. And so... If you and your friend and their friends and their friends, you know, and and more circles are getting uh, engaged in a more sustainable activities, then it may help move the needle. Now, what I'm trying to make the case is that the two need to be connected, meaning that it's true that if you think about it, we need scale, right? And to get to scale, you need to have new policies, you need to have companies that are taking bolder and faster action. And that is, I think, something that probably everyone agree on. But the question is, how do we get there, right? And and Mm -hmm. to get there, I would argue that we need people to start to basically to, you know, to, to pressure companies to try to to engage with, you know, with politicians, with companies, with people that have the the ability to make choices or to make decisions in decision makers in these companies and to get to have people working on policy changes, I think that it probably will see that people are more engaged in that type of work if, you know, they start taking care of their own impact. So I think that type of connection, eventually it's it's really about thinking about an effective connection that could help, you know, small, it's really not about the impact that you have by buying X rather than Y. It's about the, in a way, the mindset 
change. Hopefully that uh, choice will get you to, to have that will lead you eventually then to, you know, to take more impactful, perhaps, uh, steps as part of a greater movement, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I, and I think that that friction between changing that mindset, right, and driving action, because when I, I agree that all of this has to happen in some sort of connective tissue. And maybe I think the scales might be a little different, right? Like the weight of that scale might be a little different. But one of the challenges is the entire system incentivizes an entirely different set of behaviors in the sense that the choices that a private organization can make, like, you know, I'll just use everyone's favorite of Patagonia, is completely different than the model of a Procter & Gamble, right? So they can be as well-intentioned, but their business models are vastly different. And I'm not trying to pick on Procter & Gamble for any particular reason other than their size, right? So they make a convenient comparison one to the other. And so I'm often wondering in a world where it's very difficult for even the most well-intentioned CEO or CMO or chief sustainability person to say, you know what, we're taking our product lines from 200 to 150. You know, we're not making seven different types of Tide, we're making two, you know, like, and I wonder if we're not making those sort of transformational changes in what we're incentivizing, will we ever get to that different horizon, right? That three horizon model of we're kind of heading toward a cliff. There's incremental change that slows us down, but we're never really getting to maybe that ideal, right? So how do we push toward an ideal when we're not incentivizing that ideal, I guess is the long question. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that it, a system change is critical. And I think the challenge is how do we change the system to create the right incentives, right? And so in a way, this is about, again, thinking about different leverage points. Perhaps mm -hmm. you know, one leverage point that I like that I see more of, for example, is employee activism, right? Mm -hmm. You think about, for example, about a company like Amazon. A company that could and you know that has a very large footprint and its leadership until recently and to some extent also as of today, let's put it this way, does not really consider sustainability as one of its priorities. But what you saw is that with a small group of Amazon employees that basically stood up and ask the company to become more serious about this issue and to adopt a more serious plan about its sustainability impact. And in the context of the, the climate crisis in particular, you showed that this group that led to a public letter that was signed by more than 9,000 Amazon employees led the company to move forward much faster than we, we saw before. So in a way, this is a great example of one of the leverage points that hopefully could be more effective in getting companies to basically change the way they work. But I do agree that, again, it's in a way, it requires a bit of 
a bottom-up and a bit of a top-down steps to make it work so it won't be just Amazon, but basically many other companies. But that also requires us to reevaluate what do we mean when we talk about a responsible company? What is responsibility? What is our expectation? What are the expectations that we have from companies when it comes to their social and environmental impacts? And it's, I love that, you know, in that answer, you mentioned the employee advocacy, the ability for those within an organization to take a stand, because I think the concept of taking a stand in general allows me to segue to Greta Thunberg's movement and her role in, I think, really becoming a symbol for young people being actively engaged in climate change. And there's many young people involved in this movement. She's gone on the record many times highlighting other children of color, indigenous that have been at the forefront of these movements in their respective countries and regions. So I don't want to leave them out of this conversation, but I do want to use her as a proxy for youth movement and youth activism that has become now, I think, very mainstream. And I'll, I'll make one other analogy before I ask you very specifically how you think her activism and others factor into this conversation. But when I see the scale and the size of these events and these marches, in my lifetime, it's most comparable to the movement against nuclear weapons in the 80s. And we had brief sort of activism against also the Iraq invasion in post-2001. But in a consistent movement, it's most similar in my mind to the anti-nuclear proliferation movement of the 80s. So I'm curious about how you see that movement continuing in 2020 when we already talked about potential for co-option and, you know, all the things that tear down movements, right? So long question, but I do want to spend some time on Greta, young people, and these kind of new movements in climate. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is definitely you know, exceptional in terms of seeing a movement rising so fast. And I think it gives me as well as, I guess, many other people hope that we could change things and, and move faster to into the, you know, taking bolder steps. Now, I would say that the case of Greta, for me, it, it's a great example of agency. When I talk with my students and there always comes the question of what can I do? You know, I'm just an individual. I'm just one person. Now I have a good example to bring up of a person with, you know, without money, without connections, only with, you know, passion and energy. And I mean, also she's, you know, she is very articulated and technological savvy, but at the same time, I think this is really a great example showing how each one of us can make a difference. And for me, that's, this is really important. I would also say that comparing to the other movements that you've mentioned, one perhaps difference is the fact that this is very much about a movement that is led by young people, especially young women. And I think you also mentioned it in your conversation with Tim Stock, this idea of the boomer mindset and yeah. right with this, okay, boomer, 
Meme. So I think what we see is that we have a young generation that is coming, is rising and standing up against this boomer mindset, which basically is about, it's, it's not necessarily about boomers. It's, I call it a boomer mindset. And this is a mindset that also young people, you know, may have the idea that we're fine with the status quo and that we don't want to change the status quo. And so I think that this movement is very much defining a line that is a generational line and, and that is important. The last piece, right, where this movement is moving, I think that it's time to start focusing it and focusing on some of the villains of the climate crisis. I think it's important to, and when I talked about clarity, it's also to be clear about, you know, who is responsible to where we are. And mm -hmm. part of it is really to start thinking about, you know, the different institutions and the companies that have led us to the point where we are right now and to start focusing the efforts of this movement on challenging these organizations and institutions to start taking responsibility on what they have done and what they've contributed to the problem and demand that they become part of the solution. You mentioned this sort of power paradigm and how it comes through in this mindset. And I like that there's a distinction in a boomer mindset and a mentality which is different from just aligning people based on these demographic you know what I call like a post-demographic reality right you can have someone who is a young person with a mentality of protecting the status quo you know we see that all the time that they are people who are young that are just as engaged in the status quo as in someone that is older and vice versa. So these are not universal tropes, but they are value-based tropes and mentality-based tropes. So this idea of power and how it can be harnessed primarily through social. You mentioned Greta and this movement being very social media savvy, AOC being another example of someone who is media savvy, not just in using the tools, but the language, their ability to, in a way, almost not take the other side seriously that I find to be very disarming in a way and a very powerful tool rather than arguing based on like positional arguing, if that makes sense. So I'm curious about how this not so new power of social, but maybe new in this context can be used effectively without tearing even those of us who might be on the same side into like tribalism, because I do see that as well. Yeah, I, I think that to me, it's really about storytelling and mm -hmm. it, it's really about how do we create better stories in a way when I think about the role of, of design in, you know, in, in addressing the climate change is in a way in enabling and creating, developing better stories to help us figure out what is the desired future we want to see. And I think that those that are at the forefront right now are examples of good storytellers. Greta is one example. AOC is another example. And Extinction Rebellion is also a good example. And they're, I mean, not just in terms of the attention they give to really think about reframing protests and thinking about them really as, as artistic and sometimes, you know, fun engagements rather than 
you know, protest or demonstrations per se. And they're also very much, you know, they're attuned to the need to share a story that is compelling and that will help us to connect with these messages. I think that part of the problem is that we're focusing very much about the data. The data is extremely important, but people, you know, they don't connect with the data, they connect with stories. And we need to create the stories that will enable people to make these connections. And it's... The branding piece is, is so important. I've always argued that, you know, the branding of sustainability, because I don't come from a traditional sustainable background, I'm not a CSR person. My work has been in finance many years ago, and, and then it's been consistently in culture, brand and strategy. And even when I do talk about sustainability, I always say that we have a terrible way of telling this story. And it's so interesting as to the limitations shouldn't really be there, right? Because it's funny, I made a note that a lot of times we talk about climate change in terms of this existential risk, right? So people will say, oh, it's this, people can't really get their arms around it because it's it's so big and it's so vague and it's really hard to understand. What do these things mean? Like you said, there's a lot of clinging on to the data. But then I always, I come back to that and I'm like, people make decisions based on existential risk all the time that don't materialize, like, why are those stories any better? Brexit could be an argument for an existential risk that doesn't really exist, right? But people bought into this fabricated idea that their way of life is crumbling, right? And our way of life is actually really crumbling in this other scenario and people are not paying as much attention. So I'm curious about what makes one existential risk more of a better story than another, I guess. I think that it's really about how do you connect to, you know, I'm always talking about, you know, this idea that, you know, what do you prioritize in terms of really what, what do you care about? What wakes you up in the middle of the night? And I doubt if there are, you know, maybe more than 5% of the people that wake up in the middle of the night because of climate change, right? You, you wake up because, you know, of financial concerns, maybe health issues, maybe concerns about your children and, you know, Issues that we can all understand, you know, we can all relate to. But I think if you give Brexit right as an example, it's I think that the, the success of Brexit is because of its ability to connect itself very effectively to these concerns. We haven't done the same with climate change. We haven't succeeded to make these connections in ways that people will, you know, will see them very clearly, just like they see it with, you know, Brexit, you know, no matter how, as you say, uh, fabricated it is, so that that is again, I think for me, it's really a design challenge. And let's talk specifically about a industry that I think is, in a way, very much engaged with the issues that we're talking about in terms of climate, but they're wrestling with it from a different perspective, which is the travel industry. So. When I look at the travel industry, I think they have a capacity to tell and all when I say travel, I'm talking about destinations, airlines, cruise ships, everyone kind of in and around the moving of people from one area to another has an incredible opportunity to frame a climate story that is compelling. And from what I've seen, a lot of it has fallen into either flying has become a big part of that story, um, whether we should or should not fly. And then this idea of regenerative tourism. So tourism that leaves a negligible footprint or actually 
add something to the community and where you might be going. So I'm curious where we see maybe story coming out of a particular industry like that that can then be extrapolated to the larger policy points. Yeah, I I think that in this case, the question is, can we imagine a different, can we imagine a future where we not only consider the, the carbon footprint of travel, and when I say we, it's both people, individuals, but also companies, but we envision ways in which sustainable choices help us meet our needs in a way that is as good or even better comparing to you know the current options that we have. So in a way, what I'm saying, here's the thing. I mean, from my perspective, for years, we've been trying to move away from business as usual. And what we've done is developing all of these new sustainability frameworks and tools and understanding of what sustainable life, sustainable choices may look like. But I think that what we understand now with the the context of urgency, with the context of the climate crisis, that this is not enough. But in a way, we've been captured in what I'm calling sustainability as usual. And sustainability as usual is, is the type of response that we see when it comes to travel. For example, airlines offering you carbon offsetting schemes as a response where Basically, they don't really ask you to to challenge your choices right now, but they tell you that all you need to do or all they do is basically open their checkbook and and write a check to support sustainable projects somewhere else. And, And that type of approach, that type of sustainability as usual approach is just not good enough. There is this quote from Bill McKibben and Alex Stefan talking about Winning slowly is the same as losing. And I think that in a way, this is really about understanding the importance of the context and that we need to think not just how do we win, but how do we win fast enough. And sustainability as usual is just not good enough. So for us, the need is really to start reimagining or imagining what sustainability is unusual is, is about. What would that look like? No matter if you look at travel or any type of any other industry, which is really what I'm trying to focus on in my work. And can you give me some examples of where design starts to imagine a different reality in the sustainability space? So design can and should play a significant role, I think, because we really need the power of design to be a part of this effort. I think when I when I look at design, for me it's really about the ability to create a bridge between radical thinking and practicality. It's the idea that we can be and should be critical of the status quo, but at the same time we also have the creativity to come up with new ideas that go beyond the incremental and figure out how to realize them. So creating this bridge that is very much grounded in values and understanding the need in just transition that for us, especially at the new school and 
At Parsons, it's very much about seeing climate change really through the lens of social justice. I think this is a point of view and overall an approach that design brings to the table that is extremely critical to the success of every effort if we really want to move forward in an effective and faster way. I'm glad that social justice came up because I, A, it's in my notes. So it, it means that we're on somewhat of a, of a same page. And um, I did a talk a couple of years ago in Vancouver around the theme was the good life. Designing the good life was the theme. And what I offered in my talk was that anytime you're talking about a, designing a good life, you first have to define what a good life is. And my definition is any conversation around what the good life will be has to be rooted in this idea of justice, that we have to create a just society. And I used John Rawls's veil of ignorance as the frame as to what justice would look like. And very briefly, for those who might not be familiar with John Rawls and his veil of ignorance, and I'm simplifying this for time, is that when we're thinking about the world we want to make, theoretically, we should think about none of us know the existing rules of what that world is. So we don't know whether it's good to be male. We don't know whether it's good to be female. We don't know whether it's good to have money, not have money. Like none of the rules have been explained to us. And so given that idea, it would stand to reason that we would want to make a world as just as possible because we don't know where we're going to fall into that hierarchy. So that was how I, I framed justice as a way to move forward and conversations around designing a good life as it pertains to sustainability has to be anchored in justice. And I'm curious that you're thinking about that stuff. Parsons is thinking about that stuff. But when I'm around organizations, it's very rare that they come from a ethical values-based framework. It's almost always carbon footprint and supply chain management and changing the way in which we do things. They're not talking about that philosophical, ethical stuff, which I think is actually really important. Why do you think that that's missing so often from these conversations and how do we center it more? Like you're doing it in your work. Parsons is talking about it. We're not alone in this. We're, there's dots of us out here doing it. So how do we center that conversation more institutionally? <laughs> that, I think, is a challenge that we have to, you know, that we need to deal with. I think that, in a way, it is really about, I mean, it's really about, at the end of the day, Bill McDonough talks about starting with values. And this is, I mean, it seems so obvious and that you really don't even need to, to say it or to think about it. But what we see, right, is very much that this is not the case, that in most cases, the, the efforts or change efforts are, that they begin with thinking about value creation, not about the values that they're grounded in. And I believe that, I hope that what we're going to see is more and more companies and individuals that are role modeling the type of work that is grounded in values. Like we see, for example, in the, the startup space, we have a new movement, the zebra movement of uh, female-led 
startups that are trying to think not just about profit maximization, but how do we maximize profit while maximizing our impact. And this is very much in as a counter movement to the unicorn movement or, or unicorn mindset that is right now the dominant mindset in Silicon Valley. And I think that if and when we're going to see more successful examples of startups that apply the, the zebra movement type of thinking, then it will be, hopefully it will help to shape and to scale this approach. I think that it's also about how it creates structures that force you to have these conversations. I really like, for example, we have a lot of work around uh, platform cooperativism. Basically, we're talking about companies working mostly in, in the digital space that are structured as co-ops. And by structuring yourself as a co-op, you're forcing yourself to bring up questions about governance and equity and, and all of these issues that otherwise perhaps, you know, you would put aside. The same goes with B Corps that are also, this is also a way for companies to really to bring up these questions in a way that force you to pay attention to them. So I hope we're going to see more examples, both of specific startups that become and individuals, right, entrepreneurs that model this way, as well as hopefully more options like B Corps and Platform Corps that will enable this to move forward in a more structured way. You know, before we get to our, our last couple of segments on the show, I wanted to kind of link this branding question one more time, because there's this language that happens in climate space where we talk about, or climate change or climate crisis conversations, where we kind of talk about this like nihilism, this really sort of, it's all over, right? Game over. And, you know, how do we not make that the dominant branding angle that we take when we're having these conversations? Because I, despite the fact that this, I believe the situation is incredibly serious, I don't know if that is as effective as other branding slash storytelling methodology. So I want to get your thoughts around this idea of climate nihilism before we get to our final segments. So from my point of view, it's really about creating a balance between fear and hope. I think that fear is effective, but it's not as effective as bringing fear and hope together. And I think that Greta Thunberg is actually an example of how do you do it really, really well. Because when you hear her and when you listen really well to her speeches, she talks about our house is on fire, right? And that sense of, of urgency and, and the need really to act fast. But she always talks about the fact that there is still time, right? There is still a way to move the needle. So I think it's really about creating that balance where we understand that we're aced, you know, we can still make a difference. And even if we are not able, right, to meet the 1.5 degrees limit, it's still going to be much better if we meet the two degrees limit rather than, you know, uh, moving into the four degrees warming uh, zone, which is much worse. So in a way, there's this idea that we need really to move faster and to, to move beyond incremental changes. But any change that we do that will move us and beyond that business as usual scenario 
is in a way uh, a step forward. And, and that is something that I think is needed to be emphasized as we consider again, how do we get, you know, people on board. But at the end of the day, it's really, it's, it's, you know, going back to the beginning of the conversations, it's really about how do we create the emotional connection and how do we make it relevant for people? Because otherwise, if, you know, it's just not going to work no matter how much, you know, fear and hope will try to integrate into the conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I want to get to a couple of off the dome questions. So, you know, just rapid fire. First reaction that you think about. So I've seen you do mention Impossible Burger here and there in your writings. So Impossible Burger versus Shake Shack. Where are you going? Impossible Burger, for me, it's a great way. We talk about branding. This is a great example of how you brand a more sustainable alternative in a way that would appeal to you know, a much larger audience. Okay. If you can pick one travel option that you think is getting it really right as it pertains to climate crisis, what would it be? Or well, where would you go? That's difficult, but I would say countries like Costa Rica that is really doing great, but also any European country is, or big city, I think is, or maybe let me be more specific. I think Copenhagen is a great place to get a sense of what a more sustainable lifestyle can look like. Okay. And I want to get you out on this one. What is the one thing if you can give people one thing to hold with them as it pertains to climate change, the climate crisis, what would that one thing be? One thing that they can do? Or they can do or that you think is important for them to understand. Okay. I think what is really, I'll maybe I'll answer the two parts. So one thing to understand is the, the urgency and the fact that the next decade is critical and that we don't really have much time. So that sense of urgency, I think, is really the most critical one to understand. And I think that requires us really to think or to be able to push ourselves to do perhaps things that we're less comfortable with, whether it's about changing some of our practices or really engaging with others and becoming part of greater movements that are working to make the, you know, to working on changes and are pushing different climate policies and agendas that we need to have in place. Okay. So that's awesome. I want to get to the drop, right? So the drop is something that you can share with our listeners that you think is relevant for them. And the drop is always open-ended, right? So hit me with your drop. So I really like the new book from Jonathan Safran for We Are the Weather. I think this is a very interesting and also honest account of the efforts that we we do as individuals. And I mean, also, I mean, personally, he talks to me because he talks really about his family and he made connections to the Holocaust and his own family in the Holocaust. And for me, you know, it, there are many points where it resembles my own family history. So on a personal level, I really connected to the story. But what I find there is also what is important beyond the point that he's trying to make about specifically how do we 
how do we change our diets and reduce significantly the, the meat and dairy uh, products that we use. It's the idea that knowledge doesn't is not equal to action. And when I think we consider what is it that we want to have, I mean, how do we get more people on board? We need to remember that it's not just about information. If we want to get people to act, we need really to consider how to do it in ways that are about motivation, are about, you know, better stories, are about making it easier and overall making it more relevant and connected to the priorities that they already have in their life. Okay. That's an awesome, that's an awesome drop. I'm gonna definitely gonna check that out. My drop is also a book. It's called Joyful Militancy. And the authors are Nick Montgomery and Carla Bergman. And I've been spending a lot of time with this book. I've mentioned it to a lot of people. So those who have been listening to me or, or talking to me in my personal life are probably tired of me talking about this book. But it was, I think, not only is it a beautifully designed book, it's small, but it's very impactful. And it talks a lot about how we can actively be militant in our life. And they take that language of militancy, which is usually militarized and and people think automatically you hear it, you think danger. And they talk about a different way in which we can bring joy in our life through action, but really through changing the way in which we interact with one another toward building a different potential society and world. And it's a great book. And, and like I said, I've talked about it a lot. So on my side, Joyful Militancy and all of this will be in the show notes. So I want to thank you for being on the show with me. Awesome conversation. Thank covered, you. Covered a lot of ground, but I think it's important ground to cover. And this is the perfect time to do it. So thanks thank for you being for on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having Professor Raz Godolnik of Parsons School of Design join me on the deep dive. We discussed the ramifications of the current climate crisis and the potential of new brand narratives to tell a story that both unites individual and collective action toward better solutions. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.